If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Sarah Kovner, who's a historian based at Columbia University. She's the author of the new book, Prisoners of the Empire, which explores the treatment of Allied prisoners of war in Japanese camps during the Second World War and seeks to explain why so many were neglected and abused. Sarah spoke to our editor, Rob Attar. Sarah, quite a small percentage of servicemen actually ended up in Japanese captivity during the war. So why do you feel this has become such a dominant part of narratives of the war? That's a really good question. I think that it has become such a dominant part of narratives of the war because the people, a very small percentage of people who were captured experienced horrific conditions, and they were the people whose story was told. So when we're talking about numbers, I know I said it's a relatively small proportion, but do we know how many people ended up in Japanese captivity? So unsurprisingly, it depends how you count, but about... 50,000 British uh, servicemen ended up in Japanese hands, um, but about more between 100,000 and 200,000 Allied troops ended up in Japanese hands. And the reason why those numbers range is because it depends how you count. Of course. And uh, what about the, the Asian prisoners? Do they fall into the same category? So they don't fall into that category. Um, That's, again, a very good question. And the reason that they don't fall into that category is that they were not considered allied POWs because the places that they came from were not allied nations. Um, And so that their captivity would have been under different kinds of international law. Now, how prepared was Japan for holding this number of prisoners and then for the length of time that they would actually have to keep hold of them for? They were totally unprepared. So really what my book is about is everyone knows how much Allied POWs suffered at the hands of the Japanese, but they they don't know why. And my book is about why they were neglected and abused. And I find that the Japanese completely had no planning for this number of POWs. They, the guards who watched these POWs had poor training. The agencies that were responsible for them were completely bureaucratically incoherent. Um, and there was no established policy, though, of debasing and tormenting prisoners. So, as you said, Japan wasn't really prepared for, for the kind of numbers they were dealing with. Had they had much experience prior to World War II of having to hold or look after large numbers of prisoners? In the past, they had experience with dealing POWs, but not with numbers on that scale. So, for example, during the early part of the 20th century, Japan um, had held prisoners um, during the Russo-Japanese War. And what's interesting is that at that time, they sought to follow international law to demonstrate the extent to which they were a civilized and cultured country. 
And so during that time, these POWs were treated extremely well, right? Much better than, for example, Japanese POWs were treated by the Russians. They also held POWs, a very small number of men, um, after World War I, right? Uh, so they had experience, but they didn't have experience taking POWs on the scale that we find in World War II. So during yeah. the early part of the 20th century, Japan is seeking to follow international law to demonstrate the extent to which they were a civilized and cultured country. But then what happens is a faction of the imperial army gains power and they want domestic revolution and they're sympathetic to military goals in Manchuria, right? Um, and so from 1924 to 1934, we start to see these great changes. Um, and the faction, as I mentioned, is concerned with domestic revolution. But between 1930 and 1935, there are four attempted coups, four political assassinations, and 20 major domestic terror incidents. By the 1930s, we see Japan announcing its intention to leave the League of Nations. These are really dramatic changes that help explain why Japan goes from being this place that is famous for its treatment of POWs to a place that... Um, a, is not famous for its treatment of POWs or is infamous, right? So, uh, and this to me was really uh, something that was new to me, right? I didn't expect to find that. So as you alluded to in, in one of your earlier answers, one of the big arguments of your book is that the mistreatment of prisoners wasn't systemic. It wasn't necessarily coming from the top. So what what were the main conditions that led to so many Allied prisoners of war being treated badly. And as, and as you highlight in the book, the death tolls are very high. The percentages are in the 20s and 30s for most of the Allied combatant nations. What what were the main reasons for this appalling death toll? So, you know, one of, so that because the Japanese um, were so unprepared, they did not set up a bureaucracy to deal with POWs. So the bureaucratic organization that was supposedly responsible for the POWs had very few employees. They had little power. So it's this organization called the Prisoner of War Information, right? Uh, and they are responsible for, and their counterpart, the Prisoner of War Management Office, is supposedly responsible for logistics, right? But so this is an agency that's supposedly responsible for a lot, but they have very few employees and they have really have no power. Um, and so, in fact, the people with power are the unit commanders. And they, too, had they had other concerns besides POWs. They're trying to win the war on the ground. And so they're confronted with all of these allied prisoners and they're not really sure what to do with them. So really, is your argument that the mistreatment of the allied prisoners was more due to neglect and other priorities rather than the, even the, at the camp level than the commanders actively wanting to hurt or kill these men? I mean, I think... You, in some places, in some times, um, in Japan as elsewhere, unit commanders, um, or the, rather camp commandants, the people who are running these camps, there were evil people there. And so people suffered tremendously. But um, it's really due to neglect and to uh, a lack of planning on the part of the Japanese government, right? You know, we... Think I think sometimes of war crimes as being intentional, as being committed by evil people. Um, but I think some of the worst experiences come about through poor planning. And in this case, the leadership didn't care. There was nothing inherent to Japanese character or culture. 
that led to the inhumane treatment of POWs. Um, the Japanese government and military never made a policy to abuse captivities. And, you know, as you suggested, the horrors of captivity are due to accident, to bureaucratic incompetence. Um, and we, we see this in this case. Oh, and one other thing that I really want to emphasize is we hear a lot about a cultural explanation um, for the for the Japanese um, in World War II. But I think when we talk about the way of the samurai, this is best understood as a norm, right? It's true that the Japanese Imperial Army um, is trying to inculcate these ideas, but it's also true that the Japanese Imperial Army wouldn't have had to threaten punishment if soldiers really believed it, right? So if the Japanese were surrendered, right, they would face punishment. Now, you just said that there's nothing inherent about Japanese culture that led to these abuses. But could some of the problems in the camps be down to a clash of cultures between the prisoners and the captors? I think so. So when we look at wartime accounts uh, on both sides, they show the enemy as being members of an inferior race, if not another species. They had little experience with each other and didn't speak each other's languages. These guards, the Japanese and their colonials, the Korean guards, had never encountered a non-Japanese speaking foreigner. And they thought they were being defiant when they didn't immediately follow orders. But many American, Dutch and um, British troops hadn't encountered Asians as anything but colonial subjects. And the guards really weren't prepared to deal with um, the prisoners with whom they had to deal. And um, thinking about then the prisoners themselves, what, what kind of views did they hold of their captors? Obviously, there's a range, right? Uh, different people felt different things. Um, but I think it's correct to say that many POWs and internees at that time think of what we today think of as being racist views. And they were humiliated to become prisoners of the Japanese, right? And none could survive without gaining at least some understanding of their captives. And one way that we know this is if you look at archival records, there are a few cases where we find the records of um, Japanese speaking captives. There aren't many, but there are some. And these accounts show that um, these people could speak Japanese. They really dealt much better, right? Uh, they found that the guards really just wanted the prisoners to follow the rules. And therefore, um, we know that much of it was due to misunderstanding. And what were the biggest complaints that the Allied prisoners of war had about their time in the camps? Um, you know, different people, again, felt different. It really depended on what you held. I think one thing that uh, certainly I argue in my book is that the experience of POWs ranged greatly depending on where they were held. Um, and one way that I demonstrate in that book is by following prisoners of war, the same prisoner of war who was in the Philippines to Japan, to Korea, or, for example, um, a British officer who's held in Singapore and then goes to southwestern Japan and then goes to Korea. And so some of the complaints, I'll tell you some that surprised me, right? Uh, so they were humiliated that they felt that they had to bow, right, to the Japanese. And this is sort of, from the Japanese point of view, this, they had to do this to each other. This is part of the culture, right? Um, and so this is something that they found humiliating that was surprising to me. I mean, of course, they also had complaints. And one thing about 
the way that they were treated, that there was not enough. This, again, uh, that they didn't have enough food, that they were treated unfairly. You know, I, I would expect to find that kind of thing. And certainly people, this happened to people, right? It happened to everybody, I think. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. For me, something that was surprising is how the Allied bomb boats, despite knowing Americans, were abroad. And more than half of all POW fatalities, um, one historian found, resulted from Allied bombs and torpedoes. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, how how does the experience of the Allied prisoners of war in Japanese captivity compare to how other combatants in World War II treated their prisoners? Um, that's a big question. I think that it depends what you compare, right? In terms of deaths among POWs, uh, the Pacific War is one of the worst places to be a prisoner aside, but there are worse places to be in the Eastern Front. Um, if the Russians in the Eastern Front or to be Germans in Russia, and that was a place that nobody wanted to be held, which had many, many more people died. So one of the most notorious aspects of the camp system was some of the work projects that people had to do, such as the Thai Burma Railway, perhaps the most famous. How do these fit into the story you're telling? Right. So I knew about that going into this book. And I should say that when I researched this, started researching this book, I went in not knowing what I would find. But I, what I found is that we know about the bad places and they were awful. Right. But life in some camps in Japan and in what's now South Korea were better. And we know this by looking at the archival records and people's diaries. Certainly the camps in South Korea and in some places in Japan were Spartan, um, but they compared favorably with other places. For example, in Keijo and Seoul, officers farmed potatoes and vegetables and they had hogs and rabbits. And quite, quite different from the railway or a Bataan death march, the commander was actually struggling to find work for them and they were paid. As one British officer said, um, his name is Colonel Ellerington, there he said, you know, the fault lies with the system rather than with the individual. So would your argument be that the focus that we have on things like the Thai Burma Railway perhaps obscures the complexities of prisoner experiences? Sure, yeah, I'm a historian. I always argue for complexity, but... Of course, these places were awful, but I think that when you're examining something as complex as this uh, is this historical phenomenon, yeah, I think it does obscure the complexity. Did the situation in the camps relate to the situation in the war as a whole? So, for example, when the war began going badly for Japan, did it, things get worse for the prisoners? Yes, in general, that's true, right? Because um, for several reasons, right? Um, supplies, 
were fewer, right? So, um, but that's true for the prisoners of war, and it's also for the the people living outside the gates. In Fukuoka, um, in Japan, nobody had enough to eat. And in fact, people outside the gates were jealous of the prisoners of war for how much they ate. No, it wasn't a lot of food, but they were still fed. Um, and uh, soldiers grew increasingly desperate. Um, but another example would be Korea to tell the other sort of the story. So the camps in Korea were initially set up as propaganda camps. They were set up as a place where the um, Japanese were trying to show off how well they held prisoners to the ICRC and to their colonial population, right, to the Koreans. And But in fact, something that I was very surprised by was that even towards the end of the war, after they stopped being propaganda camps, the Japanese continued to um, treat these POWs well. Now, we've talked mainly, or perhaps we've assumed so far, or I've assumed that we're talking about male prisoners of war, but were there many women in these camps? And if there were, how did their experiences differ? Another thing that I was surprised by is that what I've been referring to as allied prisoner of war camps also held civilians. So in terms of allied prisoners of war, the people when we talk about women, we're mostly talking about nurses. But in terms of people who are living inside these camps, you do find female civilians. And um, so while the Geneva Conventions prescribe that, only allied POWs are supposed to be held in particular camps with particular rules. And by 1941, um, which is the onset of the time that we're talking about, there was no Geneva Convention that regulated how civilians should be treated. Civilians were, in fact, held in these camps. I mean, they, they were held in other places, but they were held in these camps, and so that meant some women were living in these camps. Now, do we know what the reaction of the Allied governments was to the fact that the Japanese were holding large numbers of their soldiers as prisoners? They didn't know for a long time. Um, in fact, even by the end of the war, the Allied governments did not know where all of the camps were. And so this organization that I'm talking about, the Prisoner of War Information Bureau, their responsibility was to keep track of all, where all the prisoners were and to inform the Allied governments. And they were not successful in achieving that. And the, and the way that that was to be done is that they were to inform the International Committee of the Red Cross, who was supposed to inform each of the national governments. Um, but as the war went on, the Allied governments started to find out more and more. Prisoners left the camps, um, and then some people were released. They made their way home. International Committee of the Red Cross got some information out. And in the middle of the war, they found out more. Um, but it wasn't really until the war ended that they knew how bad things had gotten. And after the war, how did the situation of the prisoners of war feed into how Japan was viewed and events like the war crimes trials? The experience that um, POWs had fed directly into the war crimes trial. And one of the problems was that, so this agency I'm talking about, the Prisoner of War Information Bureau, remained on the job, and they were responsible for collecting the information um, about the things that went on. And they remain underfunded, and um, so you hear stories about them not having enough money to pay people to work for them. And the British government and the American government and all the Allied governments are trying to track down what happens to everybody. They give out questionnaires to 
POWs who are released, um, you, I found in my research ads in local newspapers trying to find people and um, send out questionnaires to them to find out what they knew. Now, these are structured questionnaires, so people are replying to answers rather than just giving their information. Um, and it influenced, to, to get back to your original question, which is uh, how people, um, how they influence the war crimes trials, um, POWs often couldn't identify all of their guards. The people that they identified were usually interpreters and doctors um, who were, I mean, they, they could identify the commanders some places, but in terms of guards who were held responsible, um, these were predominantly um, the people that had had the most contact with POWs, not necessarily the people who were most responsible for what happened to prisoners. How has the the story of prisoners of war in in Japan in Japanese camps? How has that influenced the development of prisoner of war doctrine since then, and how prisoners have been treated in subsequent decades? Yeah, um, well, I think it was quite influential because when you think about uh, the main laws that cover prisoner of war, of course, these Geneva Conventions, which are named after uh, the 1949 conventions that occurred in Geneva, and what you find there is you find people who actually, certainly uh, one Australian who was held in a POW camp is actually going to Geneva to be a part of the Geneva Conventions. And these laws that were made in 1949 are the basis of how prisoners of war are supposed to be dealt with. I mean, they've undergone many changes since then. Uh, that law does not, is as in 1949, is what dictates POWs. But... Um, when I was began to research this book is the time that the United States started to, uh, in the press, a lot was about Guantanamo and what was happening to prisoners of war. And the treatment, um, I thought at that time that it's ironic, right, the way that American POWs were treated in um, the Second World War, right, that caused these Geneva Conventions the way they were. And yet the United States wasn't living up to it. Was there anything in researching this book that particularly surprised you? Yeah, there were a few things. Um, the first thing that surprised me is that the Japanese court-martialed guards for mistreating POWs. So that we hear a lot about how the Japanese guards mistreated POWs. But in 1943 in Hakodate, Takeshita Toshio beat a POW with a bamboo sword for shirking work. Or um, Tanaka Junichiro uh, beat a prisoner who stole cucumbers. So there are these incidents of when guards mistreated prisoners, of them being prosecuted. The reason that we don't find more examples of this is because the agency that's responsible for these guards really has very little power. Um, can I, I'll tell you a little bit about some more things. Um, so Tokyo and Washington are communicating with each other during the war, and or Tokyo and London or Tokyo and Canberra, right? But these talks failed. And the reason that they failed, and this links into another question you asked, I think, is that Japan was really concerned about the treatment of its internees. This is a big deal in the U.S., the internment camps. Um, but they didn't care what happened to their POWs. Um, but the U.S. Um, was the opposite. And since these negotiations work on reciprocity, the talks failed. And then the other thing that surprised me, um, and we spoke about this a little bit, is, um, you know, sort of misunderstandings on both sides. And for me, something that was surprising is how the Allied bombed boats despite knowing Americans were abroad. And... 
More than half of all POW fatalities, um, one historian found, resulted from Allied bombs and torpedoes. So was that because the Allies just felt that the military um, importance of these attacks was was such that they would risk POW deaths? Or was it they just didn't really know how many POWs would have been at risk? It's hard to say from the evidence we have, but um, I think, you know, my educated guess would be the former, right? That they're trying to win the war, that they didn't know. And they are, it's sort of a little bit of both maybe, but um, I think that they're trying to win the war as quickly as they can. And how did you go about researching your book? And did you actually visit any former prisoner of war camps? Yeah, uh, to research this book, I interviewed some guards, which was really interesting to me. Um, And I talked to some former POWs. I felt lucky to interview the guards because we don't have any, as much of a record about what they said. Um, And I visited archives in Asia, right? In Japan, South Korea, India. Also, of course, in Great Britain, where I got to visit some regimental museums and and really the Netherlands, all sorts of other places. Um, And that allowed me to tell the story of individual prisoners and internees by focusing on specific camps. And in answer to your question, I did visit a camp, right? Um, I went to, last time I was in Seoul, I visited the camp in uh, in Seoul. And right now, I mean, the buildings are as they were, but it is a school now. So that was interesting to me. That was Sarah Kovner. Prisoners of the Empire Inside Japanese POW Camps is out now published by Harvard University Press. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again on Friday when Ben McIntyre will be discussing the subject of his latest spy biography. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.